Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Fritz Eckert. Welcome back, Fritz. Glad to be here again. So we are going to uh, take up the issue of preaching. And um, apparently, Fritz, you've gotten out your soapbox and are ready to stand upon it. And uh, I don't know, give us some of the pet peeves, uh, particularly as you are about to uh, step down, so to speak, uh, in this coming June, and be a hearer more than you are a preacher. And you're just trying to get everyone ready so that when once you're in their pew, they know what to do and what not to do. Um, Melanchthon, in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, talks about preaching this way. He says, there is nothing that so attaches people to the church as good preaching. And I think what you're on about here is focusing on making sure that our preaching is good so that people become attached to the church. So what is it that you are kind of seeing, hearing about, uh, experiencing as you hear and listen to sermons um, that you'd like to kind of take up for our discussion today? Well, I guess I, uh, to be fair, uh, some of this is is conjecture on my part, but I'm fairly sure that I'm pretty accurate in thinking that there is just a great number of sermons that are filled to the brim with storytelling. And I, I get this impression from, from people I talk to. There are you know, pe- members of mine who go visiting other churches, they come back and they tell me, and occasionally I'll hear a sermon myself or get one on the internet. And what I find easily and almost almost have grown to expect it is that the sermon is just chock full of stories. And when I mean when I say stories, I mean I meaning generally stories that are concocted by the preacher. Maybe they're based on his personal experience, something that recently happened to him. He'll he'll often start with a story, something in his life, and he'll go on for minutes about this before actually getting into the reading upon which the sermon is supposed to be based. And I find Mm -hmm. this to be rather remarkable that we've come to this point that somehow or other there are just, I'm guessing, and I'm like I said, I'm probably correct, I think, that there's just way too many preachers who think that the sermon is an opportunity to relate personal stories to what is before us. And I don't think that's what preaching is. And I don't, I don't know how we got here. I suspect it it has to do with, well, I have, have a number of suspicions about that, but Mm. I suspect first of all, that pastors are not diligently reading their Bibles and learning and using the many Bible stories available to them there and understanding or, or realizing that the stories in the Bible 
are there for the express purpose of relating to the people. So we have a, a great treasure trove, the Bible that is, of good stories that are meant to teach us, to train us. So why is there so much personal storytelling going on in the pulpit? So it's not so much that there are stories, but the kind of stories, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and it almost seems like not only the kind of stories, but that the story then dominates at least the first, maybe third or half of the sermon. It's almost as though the pastor thinks that in his sermon preparation, he has to come up with some story to relate the sermon, to relate the, the gospel to the people. And that, of mm -hmm. course, might even suggest that there's, a, there's an understanding or belief out there that the gospel itself isn't relatable, isn't related mm -hmm. by itself to the people. So I remember years ago, someone said, must have been at the seminary, that sermons need an introduction and is a good thing to start from outside the text on which you're preaching and then bring it in. And I remember also years ago I, when I was a seminarian, this was something that uh, Dr. Scare, David Scare used to do. He'd say things offhand that would just speak volumes. And he said one time in passing in a class, why do you guys think that you need to have an, in, an introduction in your sermon. Just go into it. And then uh, years after that, I started studying the sermons of Martin Luther. And I find that in those sermons, sure enough, there are no introductions. He goes right into telling the people what the gospel he's preaching on is about and how it relates to them. And I also ran into this with uh, some other, some of the early church fathers they didn't ever tell personal stories about events in their own lives, certainly. That would have seemed out of place. And they never had these lengthy introductions either. They just dove right into it. This gospel, I remember, for example, in Luther's Apostles, uh, which are readily available to everybody. I think every pastor should have that Lenker series in his library if he really wants mm -hmm. to get some ideas on how to preach. Every time he just, in this gospel, we see two things, or this gospel teaches us how to take comfort in the midst of afflictions or whatever. He just goes right into it. Mm -hmm. And I think that for, for reasons that are mysterious to me, the preaching has become more and more filled with stories that, and, and this storytelling has just gotten out of hand. It's like, now is the time to sit back and listen to the pastor's personal story about something that he wants to relate to the people. Well, why? Why do we need to waste precious time in the divine service listening to some anecdote from the pastor's <laughs> personal life? I just, for the life of me, can't figure out why pastors would believe or think that that's important to the people, that they need to know what's right. been going on in his life. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm bewildered, frankly, about why that is. And so I've it been sounds like what you're kind of talking about is when the story becomes the the point at which you're oh, you're trying to figure out how the text fits into it. 
as a hearer. Like, okay, you told me this story. Now I'm trying to figure out what the the uh, point of comparison is. Yeah. And in fact, sometimes I find myself wondering whether a story of some kind will present itself to the to the pastor like during the course of the week like he'll think oh that's a good story that's there's a bible story i mean there's a preaching story that i can use and then the story becomes the the basis almost upon which the preaching is done and he brings in somewhere from the bible or in some sometimes distant way the reading appointed for the day so the story so he's basically preaching on his story in a sense, I think. I mean, I. So the story becomes the driver be, uh, of what is said, this, not yes, not a, exactly, not a, a short um, application of a point you're trying to make. You know, sometimes the way we do with uh, with other very short uh, illustrations. You know, we see how this works, yeah, like a metaphor, this metaphor, or yeah. simile, or something. Yeah, I mean, Correct. and Luther does that too, of course. You know, like uh, like cows staring at an open gate or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's uh, it's not the kind of thing that that was prominent in preaching, even I would say a a generation or two ago. Mm-hmm. It'd be it'd be helpful to look back at some of the sermons of say Walther and the Lutheran preachers of the early twentieth century, and compare how much of a storytelling mind they have in them as compared to now. As I said, I think it's gotten out of hand. And I Mm -hmm. suspect the reason for that is either this would be uh, judgmental on my part. So either a, a laziness or perhaps to be more charitable, a failure to understand or know how to prepare a sermon or what a sermon is supposed to be. You know, we, th- we have in the catechism, under the third commandment, the small catechism, we should fear and love God that we may not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. That commandment and the explanation should apply to the preacher himself, first of all. Mm. So how is it sacred if I have to hear five minutes about your conversation you had to somebody that you were flying to someplace, you know, sitting next to you on the plane. That's, <laughs> that's often been used. How is that sacred? What is, what is going on that makes pastors think that that is part of the activity that should be germane to preaching? So I think in the first place, I think it would be helpful to remind people, preachers in particular, that their time spent on reading and studying the scriptures is extremely important. It's not just a, it's not just something that you do so that you, so that you can say that you've done it. Mm. It's to become familiar with the scriptures and to have a great familiarity with them so much that things pop into your head. So let's say you're looking at a gospel, say the gospel for, I don't know, the second Sunday in Lent the Canaanite woman, and you start to wonder now, how, how, does this, how does this jog my memory about things in the Bible? Uh, mm-hmm. Why is she a Canaanite? Why does she come from 
another land. And she, she has this great faith. And uh, the, the, the steps you go through in preparing your sermon, instead of simply assuming, well, that's the basic reading, that's the basic lesson we have to get from there, this woman's great faith, and now we need to apply it somehow. Well, I think in the first place that the gospel itself has to be unpacked a little bit more than that. The details of it, those shouldn't be glossed over. Yeah. And when we look at the details, and I think that, you know, usually I wouldn't, I'm, I'm presuming pastors will spend time looking at the text, looking at the Greek, trying to understand what it says, but then it's almost forgotten when you're preparing your sermon. Maybe there needs to be a better concept of the parts of the gospel and how they relate. So it sounds like you are advocating for a bit of a return to the ancient understanding of rhetoric, particularly the the locus on invention. The so they focused sure. on yeah. like defining things and by what authority and what is the relationship between this thing and that thing or comparing and contrasting this thing and that thing or, or what are the circumstances that are going on uh, uh, around this event at that same time or in the near past or about to happen in the future in in the in the text itself say the context yeah, yeah. That, that's certainly part of it yeah but, um, you know, to say, to ask the question, you know, what does this remind me of elsewhere in the Bible? Well, that's a comparison, right? Or that's a relationship. Right. Uh, and so yeah. really delving into searching the scriptures and all of those things, I mean, that is your locus on invention. Yeah, sure. Okay. I guess the reason I started there was that my hobby horse, as you put it, today is is the story and if you're going to have stories fine but let's use the right stories mm -hmm. uh, but when we take a step back and look at how how preaching fits into the divine service and the point of preaching uh, maybe that's you know that's where we should start mm -hmm. and then when we get to the point of wanting to make comparisons you know that that always helps yeah. But then that's when we can bring the stories in. So the first thing that I think needs to be done is considering what to do in preparation for a Sunday sermon. Study the okay. reading itself. Um, try to figure out what, why is this written? Why are these details written? What is here for our learning? And how does, of course, how does this relate to the overall message of the gospels, namely, you know, Christ for us, the, the uh, kingdom of heaven and the grace mm -hmm. of God. Um, I think that there's, I think that the, uh, is it Kimmerer? Kimmerer was the goal malady means guy. Yeah. That I think is misunderstood. He was, uh, I forget the name of his book, but uh, his, emphasis on goal malady means was not supposed to be understood as a sermon outline, but rather as a way of looking at the text and trying to determine what of this text I want to give to my people. 
Mm. Uh, that's, I think, one approach. I remember when I was at the seminary, even, which is ages ago, I was so frustrated because my homiletics instructors at the time didn't really explain to me how a sermon is produced. I remember being so frustrated that, I mean, I would ask, you know, how do you do it? Well, and the response generally was, well, it's difficult. Well, it's especially difficult if you don't give me any tools. <laughs> how, how do you do it? <laughs> and uh, I, I was it's extremely really frustrated. Hard. Finally, yeah, it's, you know, I remember, you know, back in those days, you had typewriters. So, and th this sticks out in my mind. This is, I'm not making this up. He said, put your paper in your typewriter and type a little bit and think a little bit and then type a little bit and then think a little bit. I mean, that's how? What in the world are you supposed to type? I mean, yeah. I, was, I was just befuddled. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until several years after I was a, became a pastor that I began to learn what preaching is and what it is not. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'd hate to go back and look at some of my old sermons because things yeah. changed for me. I remember when, uh, when I, my kids were little, and I distinctly remember this occasion. I was up late, rocking one in the middle of the night, giving you know Carol a chance to sleep. And it must have been like two in the morning or something. And I just started randomly reading Augustine's sermons for Easter, the uh, the homilies on the spring homilies or whatever. They're they're in they're out of print now. Um, but I started reading where he was talking about the Emmaus Road experience. Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctly, he says, these disciples um, did not, uh, they said, we were hoping that it was you who should have, he, the, we were hoping it should have, that it was he that should have redeemed Israel. And then Augustine stops at that point and says, he addresses the disciples as a sort of a diatribe. Oh, mm -hmm. foolish disciples, you were hoping. You are not hoping any longer. Hope is lost on you. And I like that little way of presenting that. And then he goes on to say, they were on the way, and they did not as yet realize that the way was walking with them. Mm. And that got me thinking about connections. And, you know, this is, the Emmaus Road is in Luke. Christ is the way, that's in John. Didn't matter to Augustine because of the unity of the scriptures. And yeah. taking, taking those phrases, even the, little, the choice of terms, the choice of phrases, all those parts of what the preacher is preaching on and expounding on them and why they might have been said in just that way. It starts from the con conception or the idea that the Holy Spirit does not waste ink. Every yeah. single detail matters somehow. Often we can't figure out what it is, especially when we're looking at some of those Old Testament stories and we don't know exactly why in the world did, is this in here. But often, I remember also uh, Augustine preaching, he would preach often on the Psalms. And he would be so meticulous in his uh, explication of the Psalms that it would take him a few paragraphs sometimes, even on the opening uh, few words before verse one. Mm. You know, uh, to David, or of Psalm of David, 
on a 10-stringed instrument. Why a 10-stringed instrument? Well, there's see, there's 10 commandments, and he goes into a big, long thing on the 10 commandments and how the Psalms are make the commandments sing or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. that kind of thing showed me that Augustine was so convinced that the scriptures and every part of them are the word of God that he took time to consider yeah. every part. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring this up. So we would hear that or read Augustine and think that he's not taking the scriptures seriously. You know, that he's just using whatever he wants to to talk about what he wants. Uh, but I think you bring up a really great point about the unity of the scriptures. Do you think that our preaching has suffered because of our kind of focus on form criticism, literary criticism, higher criticism in terms of, well, that's what the evangelist John says. That's his point, And that's what Mark says. Uh, is there? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so, so we are like kneecapping ourselves in a sense because we're so focused on, well, that's really Mark's argument, not John's argument and vice versa. Yeah, there's that. And there's also, there was, there were strict warnings that we learned as like first year or second year seminarians against what was called eisegesis. You know, we, we exegete, we, we are exegetes of the scriptures. We pull out of the scriptures what is there rather than reading into them what we want them to say, eisegesis. And that was a, a very strict warning. And so then we looked at some of the some of the wild interpretations of, say, uh, you know, uh, uh, origin or origin. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to remember. And we think, well, he's just reading stuff in there that's not there. But there's another way to look at that. Now, I wouldn't necessarily go to the extents that origin has gone to, but the the the, the activity, the doing of that, stems in the first place from a belief a conviction that the very words used, the very phrases used are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. If, if you don't know the reason, the instrument of 10 strings, why do we need to know that it was on an instrument of 10 strings? Uh, that kind of question not only helps us in our biblical studies, but I would offer in our preaching as well. Uh, when you read some of these early fathers and the way they preached and compare it to what we have now, it's just like two different animals altogether. Mm -hmm. So I think we start there. So how do we, uh, how do we uh, escape that mindset of always uh, being very anti higher criticism, anti um, form criticism, but still like letting, it seems that we are still letting it define how we interpret things. Like it's still in the driver's seat. Yeah, well, in the first place, the, the form criticism got such a bad rap because it was it was used in a way that tried to uh, debase the scriptures, such as Rudolf Bultmann did, for example. You know, form, these, these scriptures have their, their parables, their fables, their myths, you know, this is, they're trying to say this, to the exclusion of their being historically accurate. Mm. And I think that was all that was. And so if you, if you're going to do that, if you're going to, you're going to look at the, the biblical stories and see a message in as if, as if it's a myth, 
then you're then you're uh, saying something that sounds anti-conservative, uh, opposed to the idea that the scriptures are true and the word of God. Somewhere along the line, we got the impression that it was either or rather than both. God mm. uses actual events to paint his pictures. You know, take, take David and Goliath for, for an easy example. Did that really happen? Well, of course it did. It's in the Bible. It's a historical record. But that doesn't mean that the figures of David and Goliath portray for us the figures, the fulfillment of those figures in Christ and the devil. Mm-hmm. You know, David, David puts off all this heavy armor of Saul because he can't even walk in it. And he goes out bare-breasted. Well, that's a wonderful illustration of Christ going to the cross bare-breasted and having no armor except his slingshot. And the slingshot has five stones, and he shoots only one of them. And that, I think Augustine said something about the the five books of Moses and their unity in Christ. And with this message, he fells, fells the devil. So these kinds of the details become important. And then when Goliath is defeated, the Israelites all rush into the plain and they chase off the Philistines, the whole army. So there's a point of a point of application then that when when we learn that Christ is our victor, we gain strength for the battle in the church militant. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of ways you can make these applications when you start with the premise that the Bible is both historically accurate and, uh, dare I say it, mythological, not to the okay. exclusion of the history, but that it is there for, for a reason. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it happened for a reason, and it's written for a reason. You know, it's like with uh, with Holy Week coming up in a few weeks, we'll be thinking of, for example, Peter and his three denials. Mm-hmm. Well, not only did he deny three times, but Jesus predicted he would. He okay. told him he would. It's like, Peter, you are part of the script. Yeah, This is going to happen because this is in the script. It's, it's in the program. It's, it's, of course, your fault that you will deny. But mysteriously mm-hmm. and beyond all understanding, God arranged for his three denials to result in his weeping, his repentance, and his restoration. Mm-hmm. So that the story, the event that took place, has a meaning to it beyond just the overall point. The details mm-hmm. matter. So that's the starting yeah. point when we seek to uh, craft a sermon, I think. And then what I do when I'm preparing sermons, you know, I... I start start with that kind of thing, and what what's the message of what's the message that I'm taking from it this time, and then sometimes you know there are certain devices which I think are helpful. Mm-hmm. One thing is that uh, there are certain scriptures that can be kind of go to scriptures for where to make comparisons or where to start or where to what to, to, to use. Uh, the mm-hmm. creation account, for example, is an easy place to go if you're if you're searching for some way to 
apply what you see in this gospel or to compare it to somewhere in the scripture, uh, often the creation account is an easy place to go to find that. Yeah. Or the Psalter. Now, the Psalter is doubly important because the Psalter, I believe, gives us the language we need to learn, the language of faith. Uh, there's a uh, an old book, The Language and Logic of the Bible by G.R. Evans, British. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is really worth having. Um, and, and she talks about the importance of the kind of kind of language, the kind of phrases, the kind of words that are used by the biblical writers. That's the stream we need to get into, that kind of language. And I think that's where a great familiarity with the Psalter comes in handy. And what you what you see when you when you see when you have sermons of the fathers or people who really know how to do this, they're incorporating phrases from places in the Bible, the Psalter, other places, into their own speech without even referencing where it comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, one great example of this that I was just looking at earlier today is, is the Matthew Henry commentary. He was a uh, 18th century, uh, kind of a Calvinist guy, which you need to remember. And he, it took him 10 years to write this commentary and it's available free online. It's a free resource. And when he goes into his points about the various I mean, he's done, it's a commentary on the whole Bible. And you can go to anywhere, to, and I wonder what this is about. What's, what does Matthew Henry have to say about this? You can go to that and you can see he is able to do this. He is able to bring in comparisons to other points, parts in the scripture. Sometimes he specifically does it. Sometimes he simply says things. He indicates by a phrase or two something that a person who was not familiar with the scriptures wouldn't even be aware of as a scriptural quotation. He just, he is so conversant in the scriptures that they just kind of bleed into his own language, so to speak. So this goes back to maybe square one, namely that if a person wants to be a good preacher, he needs to know the Bible through and through. He needs to have a strong familiarity with it. And think of the time that you spend preaching as an opportunity to lay these truths before the people with biblical uh, references, biblical teachings, and biblical words. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that um, the uh, you get, what, 15, sometimes 20 minutes. I use my, my average sermon is about 13 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, when, you, when you start to bring in all these other stories from the Bible, mm -hmm. you're actually uh, using, you're, you're actually doing two things. You're, on the one hand, you're helping people to understand what the particular gospel you're preaching on is, and you're also making people more familiar with the Bible. Sure. There was a great uh, blog post a little while ago by our Evan Scammon about the, uh, the one-year lectionary and how uh, it was set aside by the uh, by the by Vatican II and the Lutherans after sure. that, you know, in in favor of the three-year lectionary. And one of the one of the um, reasons or rationales for doing this was that you need to get more of the Bible before the people. And he rapidly debunked that idea. That's not the point of the lectionary. 
But even if it were, if your purpose, if your desire as a preacher, as a pastor, is to get more of the Bible before the people, that's what you do in the sermon. Don't waste my time with your story about who's sitting next to you on the airplane. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is so egregious that this has become so common when what we really need to know is what the Bible says. It's, it's kind of that simple in a way. So what place uh, then alongside of this, uh, incorporating the language of the scriptures and the logic of the scriptures in our preaching, what way, in what, in what place do we give then actually teaching, not just of the scriptures and what happened, but the doctrine of the church? Sure. Well, uh, let's take, for example, the Canaanite woman. Now, I haven't even looked at it so much, but uh, from the standpoint of where we're recording this, it's coming up this coming Sunday. So I'm going to look at it right now. Uh, where is it? Let's see. Canaanite woman. Okay, so Canaanite woman. He goes into Tyre and Sidon. There's the woman of Canaan. Comes out of the coast. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My son of daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Well, right there, have mercy is an easy point of comparison with our divine service. We pray for mercy all the time. And there's also the fact that she is praying not for herself, but for her daughter. And there's also a devil, a demon. And mm -hmm. there's another point of comparison that the demons afflict us and our loved ones all the time. Mm -hmm. But he answered her not a word. Why not? What's the point? Well, he's, he's intentionally ignoring her to the point that his disciples are bewildered. Send her away for she cries after us. He answers and says, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why lost? Why not just Israel? You know, you could go into a thing there about, about being a lost sheep. Um, there's there's uh, Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Or there's Psalm, the, the very last part of, I think it's Psalm 119. Uh, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Teach me thy statutes. So the, the sheep imagery is very common in Scripture, and that's an easy point of comparison. And talking about, you know, the, the Lord as our shepherd and we as his sheep, the sheep of his pasture, who easily go astray. So that's, those are the ones he's sent to, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, and um, she worship, came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. So she's, she's not going away. She's determined, it seems to me that she is a lost sheep of the house of Israel. He, she, is not, she is not arguing with him. And then he says, it's not me to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. She doesn't even argue with him at this point. She says, truth, Lord. Now, in the English, it's yet the dogs eat of the crumbs. But if you look carefully at the original, the adversative is not there. Mm -hmm. So it's, that's true. Because the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. That's where I want to be. And she, she puts, she, she totally humbles herself. She is beneath the master's table. She is a little dog. She's not like the dogs in the street. She's a dog that, like a pet. That's what the mm -hmm. word says. And then he answers and says, woman, great is thy faith. I, I, I love uh, Luther's sermon on this in particular. Uh, very good. That, uh, you know, I think it, he's, he's, he's acting I think this is this sermon. He's acting sour, but he is sweet, I know. I'm not going to go away. So there are 
uh, many points of comparison we've made already. But then there's the fact that this woman is Canaanite. She is not uh, an Israelite. Mm -hmm. So what is it to be a lost sheep of the house of Israel? Is it someone who has been scattered abroad, someone who's not on the inside, but someone who's on the outside? And if you, of course, you know in Matthew, that is a common theme in Matthew's gospel, that mm -hmm. the outsiders are the ones who get it Whereas the insiders like Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled when they hear that the Christ is coming. Mm -hmm. So the ability to do things like this and to bring it into the particular reading you're working on stems from an, uh, an awareness of, in this case, what the whole gospel of Matthew is about, what the sheep imagery is about, what the lost sheep imagery is about, you know, like Ezekiel, the lost sheep on the mountainside. Mm -hmm. To swim in the stream, so to speak, of Scripture is what we want to do when we're preaching. And if we can do this well, then we're bringing the people, the hearers, into the same stream that we're in. So, I mean, I haven't, uh, I should write this all down somewhere, I guess. Um, <laughs> because I, I fear that it's just, it's not, it's not being taught. I mean, maybe it is. I'm, I should be charitable, but for some reason, it's very hard to find sermons that do this. Mm -hmm. And yet it was so very common. Uh, well, maybe I should take that back. It's common in the fathers we know of, but bad preaching was of course, uh, common in Luther's day as well. I have, right. a, yeah, I haven't even have a quote from Luther here, uh, in his postal. Uh, he put together his postle as a remedy in order that Christian people may hear, instead of fables and dreams, the words of their God, unadulterated by human filth. For I promise nothing except the pure, unalloyed sense of the gospel suitable for the low, humble people. But whether I'm able to accomplish this, I shall let others judge. Empty opinions and foolish questions, which are of no value, no one can learn from use. Uh, is that in so the Lenker series? Yeah. That quote? Yeah, that is, that quote, let's see, that is yeah, in volume one, right in the beginning, in the, in the introduction. Wow. I mean, that's, so this is nothing new. You know, bad preaching is nothing new. In fact, I believe that's a main reason why Luther put together the postal. He just said, look, you guys, you don't know what you're doing. Preach this. Just read it if you have to. Um and I don't know how we're going to recover good preaching. I mean, I suppose it's in a constant battle. We, we put sermons in Gottesdienst every quarter, and I suppose that's a good thing. Um, but maybe we need to do something on how to preach or how to, how to um, prepare sermons. Yeah. I don't know what I the know answer is. I know that Peterson is. has uh, written about that a little bit. He'd like to do a little podcast on it as well in terms of, you know, what is your method? Do you, do you have a method or do you just kind of aimlessly go about, do you have certain things that you're always doing? And, um, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, we just don't outline anymore either. We don't kind of try to think of really how to organize the, the material that we're, we're, we're compiling. We just kind of throw it out there like spaghetti yeah. on a wall. And, uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, outlines are, it's important to know where you're going, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, a Harvard outline. Uh, I mean, it can be a very simple, so you know what what you want to say, where you're going, keep you on track. Um, and yeah, I think that's an issue. You've already bring up, brought up the issue of not uh, a lack of familiarity with the scriptures as a whole. And, uh, and I think that's true enough. I know that personally, I think as I've gotten more familiar with the scriptures, uh, there's, there's a lot more there, uh, but it's really kind of hard to, I, I think we've also been somewhat ruined by the, uh, kind of soft antinomianism, the, the gospel reduction, you know, that the sermon is only there to give the forgiveness of sins. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. And, and that it's not there for teaching and application of these things to your life other than, you know, this is the sin that she's, you know, is going on in here. This is how Jesus undoes it. Uh, and, and so, this is how Jesus undoes it in your life. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking of various methods, various devices, I should say, that I think are helpful to remember. How okay. to apply, for example, one way to apply the, the gospel you're preaching on to the people. Let's take again the Canaanite woman. What you can do is you put the hearer into the text as though he is the Canaanite woman and the Lord is speaking to him or her. Um, oh, there's another thing. Uh, why is it a woman? <laughs> why, why isn't it a Canaanite man? Does the gender of the person matter? Well, I think it always does in the Bible because a woman is a symbol of the church in a way and a man is a symbol of Christ or the pastor. You know, these, every detail matters. So I think yeah. that when you're looking at the Canaanite woman, I think it's always helpful to think, to say, now, this Lord have mercy. You just said that in the divine service. You're there right now. Jesus is ignoring you right now. And that that kind of a connection between the hearers and the story that is in the gospel is very helpful yeah. to make. I'm reminded of all the times Luther and his preaching actually ends up, uh, he doesn't actually put words into Jesus's mouth or into the disciples' mouth, but it kind of sounds like it. You know, he yeah. says what Jesus says or what the disciples say, and then as if to say, and then he goes on. Um, yeah. It, and it, it seems like there's a certain amount of imagination, more art than science that goes along. And so perhaps, you know, one of the issues that we deal with is that, you know, our imaginations have been stilted by how, well, scientific of an age we live in, but also by oh, yeah. all the technology surrounded by us. What are, what are ways to, in, in your estimation, to, to reinvigorate and renew our imaginations so that it could be brought to full bear in, in preaching? Well, I'll tell you one thing that popped into my head as you were talking, which I hesitate even to say because <laughs> it might lead people astray. But, you know, as, as you know, I, I tend not to write my sermons down. Right. 
my preparation is all mental. I think mm-hmm. about what I'm going to say. Are you saying you're I, mental? I am mental, absolutely. <laughs> I think about what I'm going to say. I prepare an outline even, but it's all in my head. Mm-hmm. I rarely write things down. The exceptions are when I have a lot of sermons to do, like for Holy Week or something, and I got one have good ones for, for the various days, and I run out of time. But generally speaking, from week to week, I, it's all in my mind. Now, I'm not saying that that's the way a person should preach, but what I am saying is that the result of this is, for me anyway, when I step into the pulpit, I have been pondering these things for some time. And so what happens as I'm preaching, I just go back into the mode of pondering, and I mm. share my ponderings with people, and you know something might even occur to me while I'm preaching, and I'll bring that in. And what, what that, I suspect and hope, has the effect of doing is uh, uh, igniting the imagination of the hearer as well, because mm-hmm. my own imagination has been ignited to use that word. Yeah, um, I think there's something there's something to that that is uh, that has been not as carefully explored, I think, as needs to be. the 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 preacher's activity becomes then the activity of the hearers, at least mentally. Yeah. Okay. But you're also right about the, the antinomian problem, um, which it if, in a way is also a uh, gospel reductionism problem that reduces it to just a few, you know, Jesus died for you, go and sin no more. If it's all about that, then why do we have all these different readings? They probably readings? wouldn't even say the well, second part. Right. <laughs> Jesus died for you. Rejoice. Don't worry about anything. Everything's fine. Yeah. Um, and you got to get that in somewhere. You know, you got to plug that in somewhere. End on the gospel. All these uh, strange, reduced ways of bringing a message to the people, I think, is unfortunate because each gospel was written, I believe, for the purpose of its being preached. Now, there's another point right there. These, these pericopes, that you look in the gospels, all four of them, they're arranged in pericopes. There's often not a running narrative. There is, are in some ways, narratives that run through. But they're, they're set up in pericopal form from the beginning, from the way they were crafted by the evangelists themselves, I believe, because they were the basis of the early sermons. So it's, it's written in a way that we would use them for preaching. Oh. And I think it's helpful to know that. Uh, in fact, I think that, uh, is that your well, own observation or is this something that has been discussed before? I think if I'm not mistaken, it might be something that David Scare brought to my attention years ago. Um, mm. well, you'd look at various phrases, various things that the apostle says, for example, Paul, these things were written for our learning, referring to the old Testament. Mm-hmm. Well, how? Why do we need to learn this obscure fact that, you know, um, Jephthah was a judge in Israel? Why does that matter? In what way are we to learn from that? Or, or take, uh, for another example, uh, the end of the Gospel of John. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that uh, believing you might have life through his name. The purpose for which they were written is given to us by the apostles and evangelists. 
So if that's true, then we can we can expect that we can use these accounts uh, in the ways that we might formerly have thought we shouldn't have used them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just history. It's not just you know like when you when you're a kid and you learn American history. It's good to know American history. Well, okay. So it's good to know Bible history too, because all these events in the Old Testament lead up to the coming of Christ. Well, there's much more to it than that. The fulfillment of the scriptures doesn't mean just their endpoint. It means that the that the messages that are latent or sometimes overt in all of those Old Testament historical events becomes uh, in in full bloom in the mm-hmm. in the fullness of time when Christ comes. So now we know. And, and Jesus does this himself. You know, a greater than Jonah is here. The, children, the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but a greater than Jonah is here. A greater than Solomon is here. A greater than the temple is here. He doesn't meanly, merely mean to say that he is greater as a point of comparison, but that he is the fulfillment of the temple, of Solomon, mm-hmm. of Jonah. And you could go on and on. He is the fulfillment of Adam. He's the fulfillment of David. He's the fulfillment of all the heroes in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of those stories. He is the, the, full, the full meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we have it. That's, that's the difference between having a New Testament and simply plodding along through the old and wondering what these things are about. Of course, even when even when those days were upon us or upon them before the before Christ came, mm-hmm. I suspect that they were wondering, what are we supposed to learn from this in a way that all too often today is not, not being even done. So I think it, uh, I mean, it all kind of, all kind of, everything's tied together, understanding yeah. how the scriptures work, um, understanding how language of faith is, portrayed for us in scripture, um, the importance of applying this to the people, it all kind of, it all kind of comes together in the sermon, or at least it should. And so needless to say, if you waste my time with all these ridiculous stories, I mean, I hear, I hear people complain about preachers who just sometimes give one story after another, just one after another for 10 minutes. What do you need all those stories for? Why? It's just, it's it's shameful. Now I'm on my high horse. Um, it just, <laughs> please so, stop. Yeah. So in terms of beginning anew uh, and revitalizing all of this, um, maybe just give, you know, three places to begin. You know, do this, do this, and do this. Not in terms of don't do this, but... What should they focus on? What are three things? Okay, three things. Learn your Bible. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean learn the whole thing. Read it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see. Number two, um, use the sermon as a point, a part of the divine service, not an extra from it, not a not a departure from it. It's part yeah. of this part of the divine activity. Uh, I could have said more about this too, that often the sermon becomes a time to relax, to uh, be okay. co- colloquial, to be, to be friendly, to be, you know, 
having a cup of coffee with your pastor. That's not what it is. It is just as divine an activity as the rest of the divine service. And it should be clear that that's the case. I didn't even go into the, uh, the abysmal practice of telling jokes in the pulpit. I mean, Jesus never told jokes. I mean, he, I, I think the humor that you find sometimes in the Bible is, is not in sermons. It's, you know, like, uh, um, what is it? Uh, the, um, the, the, uh, account of, uh, Elijah and the Baal prophets, you know, mm-hmm. you're, why isn't your God answering you? Maybe he's on, maybe he's dreaming. Maybe he's on a trip. Uh, that's the sarcasm of the, of the prophet. But yeah. why have all of a sudden the sermons become places where people wait almost on the edge of their seats for the joke of the day? Hmm. Why do we need to do that? Why not just do your job? Yeah. So set the stories aside, set the jokes aside. Let's get serious. Okay. So learn your Bible. Um, the sermon is just as divine as the rest of the divine service. So it's not separate from it. And third? Third, um, use this as an opportunity to drive faith into the hearts of the hearers and a Christian life of piety mm-hmm. that springs from that faith. You know, yeah. it's, it's not, in other words, an opportunity for the preacher to, to make points with his people mm-hmm. so that they'll say, isn't he great? Isn't, is, don't you just love listening to him? And it gives an opportunity for the preacher to, to stroke his ego, so to speak. Um, rather, this is the time to teach what Christ is for the people. And, and that's, a, that's a serious job. So mm-hmm. yeah. set, your own, set your own ego aside and just do your job. I mean, maybe that's a little simplistic, but I think mounds could be said about it. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that last point sort of sounds like what Gerhard and the early Lutheran divines were on about with the fivefold use, that, you know, Scripture's use is for teaching doctrine and refuting false doctrine, for training in righteousness and rebuking uh, those who have gone astray, and then finally for comfort. So... Yeah, okay. and speaking of the five fivefold use, uh, that's what you get in the apostles. Not the fivefold use, but Luther had a twofold use. You know, he would talk about the the reading itself, and then he'd go into the spiritual sense, and you'd find some of what people would call allegorizing there. Well, he did it all the time. Mm-hmm. He he uh, pointed out perhaps why this is written this way and so forth. So yeah, that mm-hmm. that's always helpful. So. Very practical advice would be read good sermons too, especially Luther, Augustine, the Cappadocian Fathers, you know, Irenaeus, and so on. And much of this is available free online, so there is really no excuse. Exactly. Matthew Henry's commentary, he's not Lutheran, but he's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Fritz, for your time and your insight, and uh, look forward to you actually sitting down to write this out and put it out for everyone to... uh, take up and read. Maybe I can start thinking about that after I retire, huh? Okay. <laughs> there you All go. Right. All right, take care. It's been a pleasure. 